Welcome to Science Section. My name is Luming, and I'm your journalist for this episode. We're joined today with Dr. Michael Bayler. He's an assistant professor at UC Santa Barbara who directs the Bionic Vision Lab. Thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me today. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. So could you talk about your academic background? Sure. So I'm originally from Switzerland. I um, went to ETH Zurich to get a degree in electrical engineering. And uh, sometime around that, I got um, really interested in the brain, how it works. There was a cool lecture on computational neuroscience um, telling me all about how, how neurons um, work and how they communicate in the brain and that that can give rise to vision and uh, perception and decision-making. And that's just so fascinating that I wanted to continue down that path. And it eventually led me um, to the U.S. So I studied at UC Irvine, and now I'm at UC Santa Barbara as an assistant professor. And I've, I've never looked back since. That's really cool. So uh, can you give a brief overview of the biological processes that enable vision? Let's just start from the very basics of vision. Sure. So yeah, we move our eyes to see, right? So light enters the eye and hits the back of the eye where the photoreceptors uh, live. These are cells that respond to light, like rods and cones, and then transform that light into uh, an electrochemical signal that is sent to other neurons, first in the eye and then later in the brain, in the visual cortex. And uh, somehow there's, there's millions and billions of, of neurons that um, communicate with each other to, to create a, um, a conscious part of the world so that we could just look out into the world and coherently make sense of it. And uh, yeah, th that stuff has always been really fascinating to me. Uh, and we're a little closer now to understanding how some of the processes work, but in general, it's still a big mystery. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I feel like for people like us who can see, we often just take a vision for granted, but it's such a complicated and amazing process. We do, and, and in fact, 25% of the brain is dedicated to vision. It comes so really? natural to us, but it's actually, a, yeah, some really heavy computations going on behind the curtains. <laughs> yeah, so can you talk about what is bionic vision? What is a bionic eye, for example? Yeah, so um, my research right now focuses on cases where uh, vision breaks down. So it's really, uh, it's about uh, degenerative diseases of the eye or the brain, such as uh, retinitis pigmentosa or macular degeneration. So these are hereditary diseases that affect you in the later stages of your life. Uh, they're, they're very common and um, there's no cure for them. And so a bionic eye comes into play um, as a treatment technology. So it's an actual chip that is implanted in the eye of, of blind people. And the idea is to stimulate the surviving neurons in the visual system to sort of fool the mind into thinking that it's something. Hmm, that's really cool. So can you talk about what are some different types of blindness? So does the bionic eye only help one specific kind of blindness or like, how does it work? Yeah, so uh, I know it sounds like science fiction, but there are already some devices out there and uh, they work mostly for the, these two diseases, RP and AMD. So it's for um, diseases of the eye. 
um, uh, which are very common in the developed world, apart from like glaucoma and maybe cataracts in the developing world. Uh, this is like one, one of the biggest um, causes of blindness. And so the bionic eye is targeting exactly these uh, diseases um, by, by electrical, electrically stimulating the cells in it, basically. So you, in, in these diseases, you have some cells that degenerate, and if, if the photoreceptors are among them, then you lose your ability to see because the photoreceptors are the ones that respond to light. And so the idea of the chip is to replace the lost functionality with a microelectrode array where we go in and, and stimulate individual neurons to make them active and communicate with the other. Oh, so, so does the bionic eye require kind of like a surgery to um, put in some chips that replace photoreceptors? Uh, yeah, that's in, in general, that's the idea. Yeah. So often um, the system comes with a camera that is embedded in a pair of glasses that the, the patients are wearing. And so the camera is constantly recording video. And the idea is to translate that video into electrical pulses that are delivered to the retina uh, via the electrode array. So it's really, um, it's a problem of, of translating uh, a video basically into a series of electrical pulses that the brain can understand. That's really cool. So how good is the technology right now? Can, what kind of images are the patients seeing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would say it's very early days still. So um, the currently available devices will produce very low re resolution kind of foggy vision as far as we understand. Um, and so it's, it's very, very different still from natural vision. But uh, that is exactly where, where we come in. So we are really interested in understanding what it is that these people really see when they use their devices. That has proved to be really hard to figure out just because we, you know, they're blind, right? They how, how are they going to tell us what they see? So it, it is is really been hard um, to get a, a scientific understanding of how this vision is qualitatively fundamentally different from normal uh, natural vision, as we will call it. So how do you actually figure out what these people are seeing? What are some techniques you and your researchers use? Yeah, so far it's it's mostly been behavioral observations. So we would we would sit with these patients and we would uh, turn on a single electrode and ask them to draw on a touchscreen what they saw. So if you turn on a single electrode, uh, often people think of it as just turning on a pixel in an image. Uh, but when we ask patients to draw what they see, they very rarely drew pixels. Most of the times they drew more complicated shapes such as like arcs or triangles and uh, all sorts of, of weird wedges and things. And so um, that is one hint that uh, what they are seeing might be different from what we expect them to see. So uh, similar to that, there's a, a whole bunch of, of observations you could do by turning on multiple electrodes, asking people to rate the brightness, for example, of an individual um, thing they see. And... Uh, after you have collected all this different data, it's, it's sort of our job to piece it together and build a computational model that would allow us to predict for any given stimulus what the patient should see.
So at the end of the day, it really is a very, um, very interdisciplinary work. So it, it involves a lot of the cognitive psychology, behavioral psychology, but also computational modeling. So you need to know the underlying neuroscience of how the eye works and how stimulation might affect uh, vision. And you also have to have computer science experience because you want to build uh, computational models um, that, that can predict uh, vision for new stimuli. So overall, it's 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 very exciting and application-driven uh, field. Yeah, so um, as you said, vision is really complex because it's compressed of like depth, color, shapes, and all these kind of things. So other mm -hmm. specific aspects of vision that are hard to, I guess, replicate for these patients? Yeah, as far as we understand, um, so far there's no color perception. Okay. At all, it's most people say what they see is is maybe grayish or maybe has a yellowish tint, but uh, it's really hard to reproduce color. On the, on top of that shape, it's just lost or or distorted, which makes it really hard to recognize uh, some of the, the things. And and so I guess the more general answer to that is it really depends on where you stimulate in the brain. So mm -hmm. as we start in the retina, individual neurons respond to very small neighborhoods of, of the visual scene. If you think of an image, one neuron might encode the top left corner of this image and tell you what color is in there, what edge orientations and motion, all these different aspects of vision, what is present for the upper left corner. But as you move on deeper into the visual cortex, neurons respond to more and more complicated things up to the point where you have a neuron that fires only when you see your grandmother. Uh, it's not entirely true, but uh, that's sort of the um, the idea that as you go higher up, neurons become more complex in their risk properties. So whenever you turn on a neuron like that, you tell the brain, hey, I just saw my grandmother. And the brain has to piece that information together with other input it gets. Um, and so it becomes really hard. Uh, you basically have to understand what each brain area is doing, how it is contributing to our conscious perception of the world so that you can go in, kind of hack into the brain and turn on the right neuron at the right time. Cool. So how do you stimulate different areas of the brain? Do you do it through the optic nerve or? So uh, the current implants uh, that are commercially available or uh, in clinical trials, they're mostly implanted in the eye itself, so on the retina. But there are other devices in development uh, that, that target the optic nerve, they target the primary visual cortex, and then higher up in the brain, that hasn't been very successful. But let's say up to the primary visual cortex is where you could implant. And so depending on, on the implant location, uh, you're dealing with a different population of neurons. So you have to understand what these neurons typically do in natural vision. So you have a clue how to activate them. So you mentioned that um, neuroengineering is very interdisciplinary. So how did you integrate all of your interests to um, that kind of led to where you are today? And how do you coordinate all these types of fields in your research? <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's very exciting, but also challenging. So on a practical level right now, I have a joint appointment. I'm both in uh, computer science and psychological and brain sciences. Mm -hmm. And so I try to recruit students also across domains. 
um, because I, I, I think that's really necessary to um, make progress in, in this application domain. You have to have a little bit of everything. And, and I think I've, I've always functioned like that, um, even though, you know, a program might have been called computer science or computational neuroscience, really the skill you needed came from a broad range of areas. And, and so that's very much who I am as a scientist, and that's also who I want my students to be or, or become. Great. So what advice would you give for students who might be interested in pursuing a career in neuroengineering? Uh-huh. Um, you need, you definitely need a strong computational background. And I, I would say it doesn't really matter um, what you study as long, you know, as you get the methods down. Uh, because it tends to be a little easier to learn the neuroscience after you already have the computational background. It's a little harder to go the other way around, uh, at least in my experience. Um, but at the end of the day, I think science nowadays is much more interdisciplinary as it's been maybe a decade ago. Um, if, we, if we just think about, you know, the applications of, of, of machine learning and AI in, in different domains, um, if you want to do application-based science, uh, sooner or later, you're going to find yourself in a very interdisciplinary field. And th that also takes a certain type of, of person or of researcher. Um, if, if you like that stuff, then I think you're going to thrive. It's going to be really, really, really good. <laughs> yeah, great. So uh, to finish up, um, do you have a favorite work of science fiction? <laughs> um, I... Well, probably the dorkiest answer is I, I do like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Douglas Adams, kind of classic. Uh, but I also like more contemporary stuff, like uh, Black Mirror, for example. Had, actually had a lot of, of neurotech in, in their last season, so that was interesting to see, you know, what, what um, maybe the public thinks about the potential and possible uh, implications of, of such technology. So it was very interesting to see from a science perspective as well. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. And on that note, thank you so much for talking with me today. Well, thank you very much. That was great. <laughs> so that's it for this episode of Sci Section. Please make sure to check out all of our newest interviews.